Thank you, Brother Scott, for the many years of dedication that went into producing uh, music unto God like that. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. When Pastor Vic told me that uh, I would be preaching this week, um, I thought to myself, there are only a handful of books in the Bible that are short enough to do a two-part series on. When's the last time anybody ever heard a sermon through Obadiah? So here we are. Hopefully I can tell you something that you have not heard before. Let me, oh, see, we've got our first little bit of uh, technical mishap going on here, and I guarantee you it's my fault. It's, there we go. Okay. All right. Praise God. All right. Uh, <laughs> Forgive me for any uh, sudden stops that occur along the way. So, I'm sure that nobody will find it shocking to know that mental health in Western society has been experiencing a sharp decline in recent years. The Substance Abuse and, Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has found that rates of clinical depression among teenagers has nearly doubled in the last 15 years. And the CDC reports that suicide attempts are up 37% since the turn of the millennium. And I found many such similar gruesome statistics um, in my research preparing for this message. What could be causing such a quick and sharp decline in how so many people view life and view themselves I have to think that at least two of the most significant contributing factors to that are, number one, the secularization of the culture. After all, despair is the only logical conclusion of believing that you came from nothing, you are going to nothing, and all of life is just a blip on the radar that nobody is ever going to remember. But the second major influence, I have to think, is the invention of social media and how that has not helped either. We have all, no doubt, seen people saying positively dreadful things to each other online that they would never have the guts to say to one another in person. This curious sense of malicious boldness, I think, is encouraged by the alleged anonymity of being online. You can create a profile with no image and a false name, and you can slander whoever you want online without feeling guilty, because after all, that other person is just an avatar on the screen. There's not a real imager of God on the other side of that, is there? Now, I'm not condemning the use of social media in its entirety. But I am saying that the nature of the platform is such that it encourages us to externalize the venom and the hatred that we used to hide in our hearts and think that nobody could see. For Christians in particular, this is a bigger problem than we might initially be willing to admit. In our passage this morning, Obadiah, verses 1 through 14, we're going to see that God cares about how we treat others. And we may be surprised to learn that he takes maliciousness and deception quite seriously. 
If you are able, medically so, if you are able to stand, would you do so please with me out of reverence for the public recitation of the inerrant word of God? Obadiah verses 1 through 14. A vision of Obadiah. Thus says Lord Yahweh concerning Edom. We have heard a message from Yahweh, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise, and let us go to war against them. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you will be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, O dwellers among the rocky crags, who make your home in the heights and say in your hearts, Who will bring me to the ground? Even if you soared like an eagle and made your nest among the stars, even from there I would bring you down, declares Yahweh. If thieves came to you, indeed robbers by night, oh, how great would be your destruction. If, would they not steal only what they needed? If harvesters came to you, would they not uh, leave just a few grapes behind? How Esau will be plundered and his possessions pillaged. Your treaty partners will drive you to your border. Your friends, your allies will deceive and consume you, and those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, and you will not know it. Yahweh declares, in that day will I not destroy the wise from Edom and understanding from Mount Esau? O Timon, your warriors will be terrified so that every man will be cut off from Mount Esau by slaughter. Because of violence done to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. In the day that you stood aloof, in the day that strangers plundered his possessions, in the day that foreigners came into his gates to cast lots over Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his disaster. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not gloat, do not boast in the day of distress. Do not go into the gates of my people on that day. Yes, you, do not look upon his calamity and do not plunder his possessions in that day. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off refugees and do not sell the survivors in the day of distress. Thus is the reading of the inerrant word of God. You may be seated. We often say in church that context is crucial when it comes to biblical study. But because Obadiah is such a seldom visited part of the Bible, setting the context for him matters a little bit more than it otherwise normally would. If you're a little rusty on your Old Testament history, here are the facts that are most relevant to understanding the book of Obadiah. In 930 BC, the one nation of Israel split into two for political reasons that we don't have the time to go into today. The northern half, circled in red here, retained the name Israel, and the southern half in blue took the name Judah. Over the next three and a half centuries, both kingdoms lived in almost continual rebellion against God. You can read all the sordid details of that in the books of Kings and Chronicles. The important point for us, though, 
is that Yahweh was patient with the people through all of that time, giving them so many opportunities to repent and turn from their wicked ways, and yet so much of the time they never did. So eventually, Yahweh held himself true to a promise that he had made centuries earlier to bring, <clears throat> excuse me, bring justice on their wickedness. In Deuteronomy 28, Yahweh summarizes what the people can expect in terms of being in relationship with him. What he effectively says is, if you claim to love me, and if you live consistently with that claim, here are all of the good things that you can expect to happen for you. But if you claim to love me, and yet you live contrarily thereto, in other words, if you sin against me, here are all of the bad things that you can expect to happen. And you don't have to be good at math, thank God, because I'm not, to notice the big discrepancy, the big disparity between the blessings and the cursings. There are far more cursings for disobedience than for the other. Now, among other things, this ought to teach us to recognize how severely and seriously God takes sin. One of the many consequences that Yahweh lists for Israel's rebellion can be found in verses 64 and 65, where he says, Then Yahweh will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will worship other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. You will find no peace among those nations, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. Then Yahweh will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a despondent spirit. Although God was merciful and patient with Israel for centuries, he eventually held true to that promise in Deuteronomy 28. He brought justice upon his unfaithful people in the form of military conquest, first upon the northern kingdom by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and then upon the south by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Fast forwarding now to our present text, Obadiah is writing shortly after that Babylonian invasion of the south in 586 BC, probably within 10 years or so. One unique feature of his prophecy that you don't see in most of the other prophets is that Obadiah is not actually talking to the Israelites. Instead, he's talking to one of Israel's neighbors. That's very unusual. Obadiah verse 1 tells us who he is talking to. The vision of Obadiah, this is what Yahweh God has said concerning Edom. Now, if you're not familiar with who that is, you can see on, on uh, this chart here, the little red circle to the southeast of Israel and Judah is the nation of Edom. And Israel and Edom have a long history together up until this point. In fact, they're genetically related. They're distant cousins going all the way back to Genesis chapter 25. We have the famous father Abraham, whose son was Isaac. And then Isaac had the twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And the descendants of Jacob and Esau eventually became the nations of the Israelites and the Edomites, respectively. <clears throat> Sadly, one would think that these two nations, because they shared a family history, that they would be allies, but that was actually the opposite of the case. 
Jacob and Esau themselves fought many times, and their descendants continued to war against one another for many centuries. A prime example of this can be found in Numbers chapter 20. This is while Israel is still wandering around in the desert after the Exodus. And Moses says to the king of Edom in Numbers 20, beginning at verse 14, This is what your brother Israel says to the king of Edom. You know all the hardships that have overtaken us. Our ancestors went down to Egypt, and we lived there many years. But the Egyptians treated us and our ancestors badly. When we cried out to Yahweh, he heard our plea and sent an angel to bring us out of Egypt. Now look, we are in Kadesh, a city on the border of your territory. Please let us travel through your land. We won't travel through any field or vineyard or drink any well water. We will travel the king's highway. We won't turn to the right or the left until we have traveled through your territory. But Edom answered, you will not travel through our land or we will come out and confront you with the sword. We will go on the main road, the Israelites insisted. And if we or our herds drink your water, we will pay its price. There will be no problem, only let us travel through on foot. Yet Adam insisted, you may not travel through. And they came out to confront them with a large force of heavily armed people. Adam refused to allow Israel to travel through their territory, so they turned away. Sadly, if you look at most of the remaining Old Testament interactions between Israel and Edom, they all go pretty much like that one. Thus, as Yahweh now speaks to Edom through Obadiah, he does not come bearing good news. And it shouldn't necessarily come as a surprise either. We learn that the Edomites have behaved despicably. Because while Judah was being invaded by the Babylonians, not only did Edom not help their brethren, but they stood nearby and watched, mocking as the Judeans were being slaughtered. Verse 11, God says to Edom, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them, one of the Babylonians. They were cruel, arrogant, and heartless, not only because they had a front row seat to the destruction of their enemies, but because they mistakenly believed that the same thing would not happen to them. Verse 3, your arrogant heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks, who make your home in the heights, who say to yourselves, who can bring me to the ground? The Edomites lived in a mountainous desert territory. They built their cities in the tops of these giant mountain ranges because it provided a natural defense that made them very difficult to invade. But in verse 4, God uses their geographical height as a metaphor for the height of their arrogance as well. When he says, Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down. Yahweh is about to prove their assumptions about their safety wrong. Just because the Edomites are difficult to invade doesn't mean God isn't going to make it happen. Verse 1, Yahweh unites the surrounding nations around Edom to bring them together as a coalition for war. These nations say, we have heard a message from Yahweh, and a messenger has been sent among us saying, rise and let us go to war against Edom. 
verses 5 through 9 then graphically depict the extent of the destruction that is coming. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape harvesters came to you, wouldn't they leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be pillaged and his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you, and those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, and you will not know it. Yahweh declares, In that day will I not eliminate the wise ones from Edom and those who understand from the mountain of Esau? O Teman, your warriors will be terrified, so that everyone from the mountains of Esau will be cut off by slaughter. As a small but important side note, this prophecy of Edom's destruction did indeed come to pass within just a few years, but I'll save the details of that for the PM service this evening. Finally, in verses 10 through 14, Yahweh describes in detail the behaviors of the Edomites that are bringing judgment upon them. You, Edom, will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, and do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of their distress. Yes, you do not gloat over their misery nor appropriate their possessions in the day of disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives and do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. Notice the especially heinous acts of verse 14. Some of the Judeans had actually fled Jerusalem in time to escape the destruction by the Babylonians, but the Edomites were waiting right there to capture them and sell them off as prisoners of war, as slaves, back to the Babylonians. All of this behavior is made even more despicable. Well, all of this behavior is despicable on its own terms, but it's made even worse by the fact that the Edomites should have known better. Looking again at verse 9, the Edomites are described by the name Teman. O Teman, your warriors will be terrified, so that everyone in the hill country of Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Teman was one of the more important, prominent cities within Edomite territory. And there have actually been some recent archaeological discoveries related to Teman that helped to make the message of Obadiah that much more powerful. In the 1970s, a site called Kuntilat Ajrud, west of Edom, was excavated. And one of the most interesting items uncovered was a storage jar with some images and writing on it. Two gods are standing side by side, and the text includes this benediction, this blessing for health from one person to another. It says, Is it well with you? I bless you by Yahweh of Teman and his Asherah. May he bless you and keep you, and may he be with you. This is truly fascinating. 
Yahweh is being associated with Teman, an Edomite city. He's being called an Edomite god. This suggests that the Edomites still worshipped Yahweh in the days of Obadiah. Despite the fact that Abraham has been dead for more than a thousand years at this point, the Edomites still remember their heritage. They still remember Father Abraham and his God. Now, granted, this is an aberrant form of worship. The, The Edomites have added a lot of their own ideas to the mix. They are not following God's own commands about how he wants to be worshipped. Much like the Israelites themselves, the Edomites are adding their own ideas, their own traditions. Uh, They're worshipping other gods in addition to Yahweh. They even believe that he is married to Asherah, a Canaanite fertility goddess. So granted, they have a lot of wrong ideas about God. There's no two ways about that but they still know who he is in some very limited sense. They might be surprised then when Obadiah walks into town bearing bad news for them. Up to this point, even despite all of their fighting with the Israelites over the centuries, they still probably think that all is well with the Israelite God. He's good. We're homies. Everything's fine. We still invoke his name in our prayers and our blessings. We still offer lots of animal sacrifices to him. He even spared us from the Babylonians when he didn't do the same thing for the Israelites. Surely he at least likes us better than the Jews, doesn't he? And that line of thought, at least upon initial inspection, doesn't necessarily sound wrong. But when Obadiah's words start ringing in their ears, it must have come as that much more unpleasant, possibly even that much more of a surprise. They thought everything was well, and it turned out, no, that was quite far from the truth. But now comes what I think Pastor Vic normally calls the so what factor. We've now examined the text sufficiently to understand what God is saying. But now we must ask the question, what does any of this have to do with me in the 21st century? Now, if I may make a quick side note, uh, with the way that the book of Obadiah itself is structured, this morning's message might be perceived as ending on a little bit more of a negative note, even though that's not my intention. I'm going to challenge us to put ourselves in the shoes of the Edomites and ask ourselves the uncomfortable question of when we have abused fellow imagers of God. But I also want to telegraph to you that that's not the end of the story. (laughs) I was reminded this week, our brethren in conservative, believing Lutheran churches are very big on the one-two punch of uh, law plus gospel. In, in their presentation. They always like to start to state the bad news of our sinfulness, our rebellion against God, and follow that up immediately with the good news of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to do something similar with our morning and evening messages. This morning, I'm going to leave us to stew in discomfort a little bit, but I'm going to finish with a message of comfort and hope this evening. So I would encourage you, if you can't be physically present here this evening, uh, be sure to listen to the online message afterward, because I, <laughs> I don't want to leave a sour taste in your mouth. But side note concluded, 
Adam's sins can be summarized in two basic words. Heartlessness, that is, they rejoiced in and even participated in the suffering of others who should have been their allies. And number two, arrogance. They made the dangerous assumption that they would not suffer any consequences for their sin. Now let's ask ourselves here in the 21st century, in what ways do we participate in these very same sins? We probably don't go to the extreme that the Edomites did in terms of uh, capturing people and selling them into slavery. I'll grant you that. But that doesn't mean that we're innocent. We live in a culture that discourages violence in almost all forms. So most acts of cruelty that we are likely to experience are going to be verbal in nature. We all know that old expression, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But we all also probably know how often that old adage turns out to not be true. How many of us have ever been the victims of slander? How many of us have been kicked when we were already down? How many of us have been lied to and taken advantage of all to suit somebody else's agenda? And worst of all, let me flip the script around now. How often are we the ones inflicting those miseries upon other image bearers of God? Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be, but we all know it to be true. Take stock of your conversations. Just over the past week, does your conscience condemn you as mine does me? If I may remind us of those dreadful statistics that we began with, we ought not to underestimate the power of psychological warfare, of just how much influence our negative words and actions can have upon other people. Nor should we estimate just how closely and severely God observes that suffering and makes account of it in his book. The Judeans were probably just as tortured by the jeers and mockings of their enemies as they were by the actual warfare that took place within their walls. Now, to provide a quick counterbalance, because I can, I can hear potentially some, uh, uh, some counterarguments being raised in some minds, I'm not suggesting that everything that a Christian says has to be syrupy, artificially sweet. There is such a thing, there is room in the Christian worldview for such a thing as tough love and things along those lines when they are appropriate. But that's a separate conversation. What I'm driving at here for our purposes today is that for the Christians in the room, it is part of your duty as a representative of Jesus Christ to speak words of life to people rather than words of death. James states it well in the third chapter of his letter when he says he compares the tongue to a variety of horrendous things. Now, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small member of the body, it boasts great things. 
Consider how a small fire, a spark, sets ablaze an entire forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself on fire from hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, but with it we also curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouths. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? The implied answer being no. Neither can a salt water spring yield fresh water. Brothers and sisters, take stock of what you have said and done over the past week. Has your tongue planted forests? Or has it burned them? Has it produced fresh water that brings life or stagnant water that poisons? I want to close with a quick word to any unbelievers among us. Please don't mistake me talking about words of life and death as being only about saying nice things to people. There's plenty of room for that in all worldviews, and there is a small element of truth to that in the Christian context as well, but there's a lot more to it as well. Jesus Christ, who was a real historical person, truly God in flesh and truly Messiah and Redeemer, brought the kingdom of God to earth with his death, burial, and resurrection 2,000 years ago. And over the past 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit has been working through his church to spread that kingdom to all the corners of the earth, bringing life out of death, bringing light out of darkness, and children of God out of enemies of God. I don't know what combination of life circumstances might have brought you here this morning, though we're certainly glad that you're here with us. But if you would like to know more about this Jesus, of whom we make so much praise, I would invite you at this time to come forward and speak with one of our deacons. They'll get some contact information from you, and either Pastor Vic or I will set up an appointment with you soon uh, to tell you more about these things related to King Jesus, repentance, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, 